Heavenly Father, thank you for speaking to us. I, I pray you would generate that, whether we're, we're Christ followers or we're here and we're not even sure how. We, we're here because someone brought us. We haven't been in a church in 20 years. Whatever our background is, might we hear your word today is from you. This is an incredible text, declaring your grace and inviting us to walk in it. So would you, make it, would you make it loud? Would it pierce through everything else, whatever distractions, whatever, whatever resistances we might have, whatever backgrounds we come from, whatever baggage we bring, might we just hear about what a good God you are today from your word? In Jesus' name we pray, amen, amen. Well, if you're able to stand for the reading of God's word, would you stand with me? We'll start uh, Luke chapter 15. I'll read verses 1 through 3. And then uh, what is for, for, if you've been in the church for any amount of time, often was a very familiar story um, from verse 11 through the end of the chapter. This is God's holy and wonderful word. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable. And he said, there was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and he came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. And bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found and they began to celebrate. Now his older brother was in the field and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing and he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him, but he answered his father, look, these many years I have served you and I've never disobeyed your commandment, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, son, you're always with me and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. Feel free to grab a seat. I 
October 2003, I cheated on a Christian ethics exam. I've shared that a number of times. I always find it ironic. Um, it was the last exam of my last class to get my Master of Divinity. I cheated. Um, I, I had left seminary a little bit early. My wife and I had had Emma, and so I was able to finish up my last few classes remotely. And so I actually cheated on this exam after getting hired by Christ the King. Um, so I'd been a pastor for two weeks, and I cheated in my pastoral office at Christ the King. I cheated on the part that uh, was closed Bible. It was a closed Bible portion, just Bible memory. I cheated on the part that was the question was, what is the fruit of the Spirit? And so I cheated. I, I, I wrote the answer, and I, I was like, ah, did I get them all right? Saw my Bible closed, paused, reached for it, grabbed it, opened it, looked, Closed the Bible, signed the exam, mailed it. Over the following weeks and months, um, it just kept nagging at me. I'd be doing Bible and prayer time, and and it would. I just think about that scene. It was really hard for me to focus. I would be in my office, um, you know, as a as a new young pastor and someone sharing their stuff in their life, and I'm not even able to really be present because I'm just thinking about the stuff in my life. Um, I kept rehearsing um, what was happening, and, and I'd be like, well, I, I mean, I, I was taking the class pass-fail, so it didn't, like, it doesn't really matter. I was, I was killing the class. It was fine. Well, I, I know I did really well on the rest of the exam, so who cares? Like, it doesn't even really make a difference how I would have done on that question anyway, so it's probably fine. I was like, like, I mean, I didn't even change my answer. So I looked, but I didn't change my answer. So really, is it even, like, did I even sin? And no matter how much I did that, I just couldn't get out of this feeling that I needed to own up to what I did. And so I finally did. I contacted the school, and I confessed my sin. Now, whatever you think about what I did or how I cheated or, or how I got worked over by it, I will tell you there's a lot grander sins in my life that I probably haven't. Here's why I bring it up, though. Confession is a gift of God. It's meant to bring us relief. It's meant to remind us of his incredible grace and to get us back on the path of pursuing godliness for his glory and our good. Consider Psalm 32, verses 3 through 5. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. Selah. I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. And then that little phrase, say, like, we're not sure what that means. Some people think it's like, think about that last line, or it's just a musical notation. And if you go in that psalm, then there's, there's joy that comes. And, and many of us can relate to those verses, this sense of like, ah. And it's not trying to be 
hyper-scrupulous and like every little thing we mess up or we just constantly be sharing all the things, even the stuff we're probably thinking now or this morning or, I mean, it's just like constant, right? But sometimes these things lodge in us and there's a conviction that comes and when we don't speak it out, we don't, we don't make it real, there's just this sense of like, our strength is dried. Our spiritual vitality is dried up. The, the ability for us to counsel and serve others feels lessened because who are we to say anything to anyone else when we know we got this skeleton? So the one that wrote this, King David, he, he's saying when this was happening, and I didn't make it known, but boy, when I came clean, when I came clean, came back to the Lord, knowing that I'm forgiving, knowing that my iniquity is is covered. I was strengthened. This parable is really a parable that illustrates a confession. That's what you have with this younger son. He, he rehearses the confession. He, in the, in, the, in, in, in the pig pen and all the slop, he comes to himself and he, and he begins to say, I know what I'll do. I'm going to go back to my dad and I'm going to own it. Father, I have sinned. You're acknowledging sin because you actually think you've committed sin. To be able to say, I have sinned, means that there's been some degree of, of conviction that you've done something that's fallen short of the mark of, of, of God, and so you say it. I have sinned. Father, I have sinned. He actually then says it. He doesn't just acknowledge that he has. There's not just conviction. We sometimes do that. We stop. Like, ah, I blew it. I'll not blow it again. But it actually says, no, 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 I, I sinned, and now I'm going to confess that sin. So he comes, and he confesses, and he says, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. And this brings in a really interesting dynamic, because in the parable, if we just take it at ground level, the son sinned against his father, but he says, I've sinned also against God. See, everything that we do that rebels against God's good design for humanity is not just uh, usually an assault towards other people or ourselves. Sin is always going to assault somewhere horizontally. But fundamentally, it is, is an offense to God. He says, I have sinned against you, Dad, and I have sinned against my Father in heaven. And then he goes on, he says, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And, and I think here you actually have a, a helpful insight to say that, that sin really does fracture things. There are, there's consequences that come from it. I don't have to illustrate that. We, we know that, but the story highlights it. It says that I, I've not earned the right to be your son. I've earned the right for you to stiff arm me. It's not coming back presumptuously. It's not coming, he's not coming back flippantly. The word confession means to acknowledge, to admit. It actually literally means to say the same thing, so it's just to be honest. It's not glib. This, this, what I love about this is not blame-shifting. He's not minimizing his sin. And the reason I say this, we talk about this house rule, confession takes courage, don't cringe, is we're not talking about like unrepentant sin. We're not talking about patterns in someone's life who they don't care about. Those, those need a, a loving rebuke. This is when someone comes to themselves and realizes, ah, what do we do in those situations? When I kept silent, this is what happened. And so we could see confession is a, real, is a real gift. And in Psalm 32, what we see is confession, though, towards God. There's, there's no reference in that text that it's to anyone one else. But, but in this parable, it is to someone else. It's to the Father. And we have other parts of the Bible that talk about confession of sin towards others, like, like this one out of James 5, the first part of verse 16. Therefore, confess your sins to one another 
That verse brings something, really a different side to confession, not just a private matter between you and God, but a, a, but a matter in an appropriate way towards others. Um, we could see maybe three common ways for sin to be exposed. The thing that most of us are most worried about most of the time. Three common ways for it to be exposed. You could see James 5, it's confessed, it's volunteered. We also see places like Galatians 6, um, 6 1 says this Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watching yourself, lest you too be tempted. So it can be confessed or it can be caught. You're found out. And the idea here is that you live amongst other people spouses, friends, roommates, teammates, coaches, teachers, whatever. People are going to see your stuff. And the idea with Galatians 6 is as, as you see someone, and the idea of caught is something that maybe someone doesn't see or they're habitually in it. It's not just every single instance of seeing someone mess up or we'd constantly be just calling each other out. But this is a situation where someone is in sin and they're, they're unable or they're unwilling or whatever to, 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 to get out of it. And so you who are holy, go to them in a spirit of gentleness and try to help. So it could be Confessed or caught, it can, it can be compelled. And I don't mean that in, a, in a, like a coercive way. This is Matthew 18, verse 15. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you've gained your brother. The idea is I'm going to tell you the thing that you did that hurt me, and my hope is that you'll have some conviction and you'll, you'll own it, that you've gained a brother. The idea is that there's been a restoration that's happened. So the, 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 here's why I'm saying all this. In the background of this house rule is the, idea, is the idea that what happens in a community when someone is, what do we do as a people when someone is found out as a sinner? That's what's in the background of this. What do we do as we live our lives with one another when someone's stuff is actually found out? However they're found out, how do we respond? What's our, what's our flinch? I really enjoy the, uh, the I, think I think it's a meme, I think. I'm not sure. I still can't figure out what that technically means, but we see them all the time. Um, and it's that, like, every sign has a story. You know, it's like signs posted up. And so let's do, I, th- I think we have a few of these. So this is, uh, this is STP gas booster right here. And there's a sign above it that says, not an energy drink. <laughs> it's at some point, that was needed. <laughs> we'll do just a few more. Spice level warning, level zero to five. We will no longer issue refunds when you order food, your food spicy and can't handle it. <laughs> Every sign has a story. How many times did it take for them to put that sign? Maybe we'll do one more. FY, any conversation that you have in this corner echoes strongly into room 2037. Please know that your conversation is not private. That's an upright person right there. That's like, good for you. I I would just be taking notes, like memoirs of room 2037, you know? I love it. Every sign has a story. We won't do the rest of them. Jesus told this parable for, for a reason. That's verses one through three. There's these scribes and Pharisees around him, and they're grumbling because known sinners were coming and eating with him. And Jesus welcomed him. So Jesus tells this, this story that the scribes or Bible experts, the Pharisees, they were the, the religious elite of the time, and they are cringing because Jesus is welcoming sinners. They grumble to, to murmur, to mutter under their breath. They're disgusted. Confession is meant to be a gift. To be found out is meant to bring a sort of, of healing, but it's also a risk. 
How will people respond? How will my wife? How will your dad? How, how will your boss? How, how, how will your pastor? How will your friends? How will your roommates? When they find out, what's going to be the response? Alistair Begg, wonderful preacher, makes this incredible insight in his sermon on this parable. He says this, he says, what if there had not been a father to whom he could return? Or what if the father to whom he could return was a father who simply treated his boy as his sins deserved? Let that sink in for a minute. And, and, and the pig trough, embarrassed, convicted, knowing what you did was wrong? What if there was no one to go back to? Or what if the person that he could go back to would simply tr- say, yeah, you're right, you are not worthy to be my son, and no, I won't even hire you back as a servant. You know, what if verse 16 was it? And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. And that's where he stayed. Again, quoting Alistair Begg, he says, he says, what a tragedy it would be if that were the end of the story, that he lived helpless and hopeless and humiliated, and then he just died. What if the consequences of sin were irrevocable? What if sin was sin forever? What if there was no solution to sin? What if there was no heavenly father to whom the prodigal boy, the prodigal girl may return? What possible comfort could, could there be for this boy unless he has a waiting, watching, seeking, loving father? Is there any comfort in the story of sinners if the sinner is unable to come home? If he finds no reception, if he's unsealed, unrestored, and unforgiven? Let me do my own little what if with this parable. The son's in the pig trough. He's in a land of famine. There's no one that will give him anything. And he comes to him and says, I know I have a dad. And I know my dad is good. And I shouldn't have gone. But here's what I'll do. And he he musters up the courage to actually go back. Imagine how he went back. What he looked like. What he smelled like. The stories that that we all, the narratives we all in this room can play in our heads over and over again about our backgrounds. He's coming with all of his baggage. It's just, he's wearing it. And he's finally, he's coming back and he's getting closer. Imagine what it feels like. You know that moment before you confess? Just that anxious, like what's going to happen? Imagine if the first person that, that that this young son encountered wasn't his dad, but was his big brother. What if it was his big brother who was standing there and saw him coming? How would that reception have gone? What would have been the outcome if instead of his dad who who saw and felt and ran and embraced and kissed, he had his brother who's angry, who won't go into the party? You know, is there any comfort for sinners if they're unable to come home to us? And our marriages, our relationships, our friendships, and families, and churches, and gospel communities, and discipleship groups, wherever you inhabit. Tim Keller says it like this out of his book, The Prodigal God, the elder brothers of the world desperately need to see themselves in this mirror. Jesus aimed this parable primarily at the Pharisees, to show them who they were and to urge them to change. The younger brother knew he was alienated from the father, but the elder brother did not. That's why elder brother lostness is so dangerous. 
Elder brothers don't go to God and beg for healing from their condition. They see nothing wrong with their condition, and that can be fatal. If you know you are sick, you may go to a doctor. If you don't know you're sick, you won't. You'll just die. Or this from John Piper. This is a passage for longtime churchgoers. This is a passage for people who don't struggle as much with running from God, and listen to this, as they struggle with condemning those who do. This is a passage for people who tend to think of other people who need this passage. Confession is meant to be a gift, but depending, and I want to say this with as much empathy and shared journey, but depending on how you've been handled, whether in a church environment, whether in a home, whether in a meaningful relationship, depending on how you've been handled, it may not feel like a very good gift. Like many high schoolers, I was supposed to read the Scarlet Letter in, in high school, and like many high schoolers, I did not. Um, I did end up reading it a number of years later when I was going to seminary. I was going to seminary north of Boston, and so I got into uh, uh, Puritanism in America and kind of the background. We took a class on it, did field trips and different things to sites, which was very fascinating. But the Scarlet Letter written by Nathaniel Hawthorne is, is, a, is a fictional story about a woman named Hester Prynne. And, and Hester has a extramarital affair with another man who we know as we read it um, who it is, um, but the people in the community don't know, and she gets pregnant. And after she has her baby Pearl, the punishment that her local church put her through and her community put her through is said, Hester, here's what we're gonna do. We're gonna have you stand on this stage for three hours so that we can mock you. And then what we're going to do is we're going to take a scarlet letter, an A for adulterer, and you have to wear it every day for the rest of your life. Everywhere you go, what you've done will be visible to all. We'll never forget it. Even in her death, um, all it was is a simple black slate tombstone with a crimson letter A emblazoned on it. It's a terrible depiction, and I would say a, a... a false depiction of a lot of the Puritans, but a terrible depiction of Christianity. Nathaniel Hawthorne wrote it as this very distorted view of what happens when churches go sideways as they handle sinners. But for many of us, tragically, and maybe, maybe not in this room because you're here, but many people that have walked away from the church, many people that stay away from the churches, that's their view. That's the place you don't want to get found out. Of all the places in the world, That's the place you you don't want to come clean. Churches have and do publicly mock. And we may not attach scarlet letter A's to them, to their clothing, but maybe we do mentally when we see them. I was thinking about this, what the church could have done for Hester and her baby Pearl. Me too. I, I mess up. Maybe not in that way, but I do. Let's, let's go to the Lord. Let's remember what he's done. Let's remember that he came to seek and save the lost. Let's remember that he died for sinners. Let's remember the very grace that we say we love and proclaim, that he'll take our sins that are scarlet and he'll make them white as snow. That they'll be so far the east from the west that they can't be touched, that, that there'll be no recollection of them anymore. They'll just be a, a reception. Let, let, like what it would have been like to say, let's help raise your child. Let's walk with you in this. Is your family. 
but, but they didn't. And what they, what they feature in this is something Ray Ortland in his book, The Gospel, captures. He says this. He says, a church with the truth of the gospel in its theology can produce the opposite of the gospel in its practice. That's a, that's a frightening line. That, that a church can unsay what it sings and it proclaims with the way we behave with one another. That we can say, oh, we believe in grace, but how do we treat one another when, we, when we're found out? How do we respond? What's our flinch? What's our flinch? I would suggest to you the Pharisees in this, they had the right doctrine. They had terrible, terrible culture. The elder brother in this, he knew, he knew, he knew the Bible. He knew how he spoke, but he, but he didn't react that way. If you wonder why we have house rules as a church, why we care so much about how we live this out, um, this parable captures that. Like this whole series is meant to say we want to take the doctrines that we believe and say they're supposed to get worked out in the everyday stuff of how we interact with one another. We want our church and our homes and our parenting and our marriages and our friendships. You know what we want them to feel like? The embrace of this father. We want to feel like that kind of hug, not like the stiff arm of the brother. Again, quoting Ray Ortley, says this, the gospel does not hang in midair as an abstraction. By the power of God, the gospel, and I'll define that in a minute for those that may not know it. The gospel, the good news, it creates something new in the world today. It creates not just a new community, but a new kind of community. Gospel-centered churches are living proof that the good news is true, that Jesus is not a theory, but is real. Let's talk safe spaces. Um, I know safe spaces can get a, a bad rap, and I, I absolutely agree that they can be used uh, poorly. They can be wielded as a, a really blunt tool um, in ways that shut down the, the very good exchange of ideas and shut down freedom of speech and can be overplayed and drawn out. But just consider this, this definition of, of, a, of a safe space, and regardless of where the background comes from and all this different stuff, but this is a place or environment which a person or category of people can feel confident that they will not be exposed to, to hatred or criticism or, or they can't exist. They're just not exposed unduly. Let me give you a category of people in a space, sinners in the church. Sinners in the church. That this is meant to be a place where we're all outed. We're all outed by the gospel. Every single one of us. And so we get to be a place where when someone is outed, they're able to come in and be welcomed and received in a way when they confess we don't cringe, we don't stay outside the party. Again, quoting Orlean, says, gospel culture is the shared experience of grace for the undeserving, the corporate incarnation of the biblical message and the relationships, vibe, feel, tone, values, priorities, aroma, honesty, freedom, gentleness, humility, cheerfulness, indeed, the total human reality of a church defined and sweetened by the gospel. The church gets to be the place. And you are. The, the, I'm, I'm preaching to people who would run like the Father. So it makes this place so beautiful. See, we get to be a place, not where sin is redefined as something other than sin. We don't, we're not trying to say, oh, it doesn't matter. Oops, a daisy, no biggie. That's not what the Father does. He doesn't say it doesn't matter. But he says you matter more. We're not a place to say that sin doesn't matter. We just say that grace is, is better. And the gospel is real. Not, not a place where we're surprised or disgusted or cringe or withdraw or shame or condemn others when sin comes out, but full of compassion and grace and understanding and patience and hope. 
Well, the question we might ask is, how do we become more like that, that type of church? And, and I will say, I want, I want to say that you are this type of church. It's the thing I hear over and over and over again, a place where, where it, it feels okay to, it's okay to not be okay. A place where, where when we stumble, we're not mocked but helped. And so I want you to hear that, but wherever we might have elder brother tendencies in us, we, we, we want to root those out. And so how, how might we do this? Um, I have a piano at home that I love playing, play it regularly. I, it was a gift about 19 years ago. Someone bought it for me, which was incredible. Um, I haven't tuned it in 19 years. So, so I got, <laughs> which doesn't show how much I love it. I love my piano. I really do. It's been moved, I think, four times now, like major moves, put on a truck, move somewhere, which typically has a tendency, if you play piano, to really get it out of tune. Some of you are, you feel like this is the confession I should have led with. <laughs> Like, that's worse. I understand. I haven't tuned it in, in 19 years, and I'm really used to it being out of tune. When I screw up, I just blame it on that. Um, I, I'm really so used to it, I don't really notice or care that much. And uh, my, my oldest daughter had a buddy over last summer, this guy named Ben, and he's just a really, really talented musician. And, and Ben and my daughter Emma were like, hey, can we go to the music room and can we play and sing? And all of a sudden, I'm like, yeah, have a blast. It'd be great. And so it was fun to like listen from upstairs and they're, they're doing their thing. And this guy was really, really, really good. And, uh, and they came up, I said, hey, did you have fun? And so I said, yeah, but your piano is so out of tune, it is unplayable. And I said, get out of my house. <laughs> and I, it just dawned on me, like, we can get so used to things being so out of tune that we don't even realize it. Man, we can get so used to being harsh that we just think it's normal. So used to, to, to shaming, to recoiling, that we don't even feel the dissonance. One of the reasons I love this song, uh, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing, is that the next line, tune my heart to sing thy grace. Come thou fount of every blessing, tune my heart to sing thy grace. Let it get retuned, recalibrated, realigned with the father that we see in this text. This parable really helps to retune our, our hearts. And in this text, you have these, these action verbs of the father. It says he saw. He's looking. He's longing for his son to come back. He's not, he's not looking with anger because the thing he feels is compassion. The, the word means the bowels churn. You feel it deep in your gut. It's like, oh my gosh, my boy. I don't know where he's been. I don't, I just, I, I don't care. I'm just glad he's back. And then he rubs. You see this picture in, in, in the background. And many of you have heard this, but the, the imagery of a Middle Eastern man, a patriarch who's likely wealthy, picking up the hem of his robe like a little child would have been an absolute insult. It would have been a dishonoring thing for him. He doesn't care. He doesn't care. He just sees us. He, he wants to run to him, so he wants to shorten the length of time it takes to embrace him. Literally, to fall on his neck, to just hold him with everything he has, and he, he just begins to kiss him just over and over and over again. Is that how you envision God handling you as you stand at the edge of his country and covered in slop? Whatever it is. Whatever it is. That stuff that, that wearies the bones that we don't want to say. 
that that's what the Father will do. In Christ, that's what the Father will do. He will see, he will feel, he will run, he will hold, he will kiss. And then it goes on in the text and bring the, my, the best robe, which would have been the Father's robe reserved for very special occasions, put it on my son, re-robe him. Take off his filthy garments, clothe him with something better, put a ring on his finger, this, the signet ring that say this, you're restored back as a son. You have all the rights and privileges as being, being my heir. Put shoes on his feet and take the fattened calf, which would have been reserved for extremely rare, really important celebrations. And let's throw a party. My son was lost and he is found. And I want the whole town to know it. King's Kaleidoscope is one of my favorite bands, and they have this song off their, not their newest album, but the one before that, Baptized Imagination. It's called You and I Again. And the lyrics could easily have been written by the young son in this text. It says, could you carry all my shame since I never seemed to change? Could you? Would your feelings ever fade? Could you think of me the same? Now, could you? And now, don't we, don't we ask that? Isn't that what we're asking when we're in the, in the trough? Like, what will people think? What will my spouse think? What will my kids? What will my parents? What will my church? What will my friends? What will God? Ask this, these questions, these questions, and you know, the son's wondering what the father might do. And then what I would suggest in that song from King's Kaleidoscope is the best song. It says this, this kind of awareness. Maybe the mess of me only grips at your heart. And don't you know that it's apparent, like it's for, the, for the parents in the room, and maybe you could piggyback off this, um, Parents know that feeling when you're, like, once you get past the initial anger or the, the initial fear that you have when your kids are making some really sideways choices, or maybe the annoyance or, or, or the, the feeling of disrespect, when you finally get to that place, when you see your child make a mess of things, all you really long for, if you're honest and you've talked to any parent whose kid is wandering, all you really long for is that they just come home. And if we don't, then there's usually something broken in us. The father just wanted the son to come home. If you have any doubt that the father wants you just to come home and wants everyone to simply come home, you just keep singing this song, Come Thou Fount. Jesus sought me when a stranger wandering from the fold of God. He to rescue me from danger interposed his precious blood. The word interposed means to be set between that, that Jesus Christ and his blood create a, a covering and a cleansing. It, it's not a denial of our sin and our rebellion and the things that need forgiving. It's actually a declaration that they're so odious to a holy God that Christ had to, to come and bear the penalty and bear the punishment in our place that we might be welcomed in. That's the story of the gospel that Christ was the perfect elder brother who always obeyed and always did what was right and never wandered away, who then became the fattened calf that was sacrificed for the place of younger brothers and sisters like ourselves that run from God and come back with our eyes to the ground and go, what will he do? What will he do? Will he welcome me back? And Jesus says, they're covered. They're clean. That they get to wear the best robe, the, the righteousness of Jesus Christ. They get to be restored back in. The gospel is what God does for sinners so we can come home, whatever we've done. I love this uh, uh, paragraph from David Schumann, How to Find Relief from Guilt. He says, God's forgiveness doesn't finally depend on you. 
Amen. Just pause there. God's forgiveness doesn't finally depend on you. The pardon he offers has nothing to do with what you have or haven't done, but everything to do with what he has done. I don't know what you've done, but I know what God has done in Christ. His life, death, and resurrection are the golden key that unlocks the wonder of Psalm 32. Jesus experienced the heavy hand of God so you might experience his mercy. He groaned and cried out in agony so you might shout for joy. He was shamed so you might rejoice. His strength was dried up so you might have life. He willingly gave his life so that now, because of his death in your place, you can be forgiven no matter what. You can drop the weight of sin and shame because Jesus will carry it for you. I want you to think about how different this is than what our culture might offer. See, our culture, any community can say, confession takes courage, we won't cringe, but where does that leave us? Apart from the hope that we have in the gospel. See, only the gospel frees us to be fully honest without then being afraid and without staying in our shame or our guilt. Think of how Tim and Kathy Keller say this in The Meaning of Marriage. To be loved but not known is comforting but superficial. To be known and not loved is our greatest fear. But to be fully known and truly loved, it's a lot like being loved by God. It's what we need more than anything. It liberates us from pretense, humbles us out of our self-righteousness. Or maybe even better, this quote, love without truth is sentimentality. It supports and affirms us but keeps us in denial about our flaws. Truth without love is harshness. It gives us information but in such a way that we cannot really hear it. God's saving love in Christ, however, is marked by both radical truthfulness about who we are and yet also radical unconditional commitment to us. The merciful commitment strengthens us to see the truth about ourselves and repent. The conviction and repentance moves us to cling to and rest in God's mercy and grace. See, the gospel says, son, you are a mess. And I love you anyway. Come here. Come thou fount of every blessing, tune our hearts to sing thy grace so we can show his grace. Over 20 years of being a pastor, um, I'll say some of the, I'd say some, it might be the most holy moments, but some of the, the most holy, precious moments that I get to experience is when someone opens up their closet and shows me the skeleton. And, and when it happens, and it's happened so many times, and I'm sure for you it's happened in your lives too, there's almost always the same posture. There's the first 10 minutes, 11 minutes of just talking around things. And then that moment when the eyes go to the ground and someone just stares at their shoes. Oftentimes there's a tear that hits. And there's a sigh. And then that confession begins. There's just so much, there's just always so much shame that's, that's in the moment. And there's this wondering of what's the response going to be. And it's a really vulnerable place for someone to put themselves in. And it's an honor. And it's an honor when someone does it for you. And the first words, your first words, my first words are so important. Our first flinch, our first reaction, our facial expressions are so important. And typically what I'll do is with someone who, who's sitting on a couch and I'm in a chair and their eyes are down at the ground, they're kind of slunched over, is I'll kind of creep down just a little bit to try to make eye contact. And, I'll, I'll, and I'm not trying to do it performatively, but I try to look at them with eyes of compassion. And I just say, that took so much courage. Thank you for sharing that. 
How can I help? And what you feel in the moment, what you see in the moment, is it doesn't take away everything. It doesn't fix everything. But you say, okay. And the eyes come up. uh, Brendan Manning in his book, The Regamuffin Gospel, says this. He says, whatever our failings may be, we need not lower our eyes in the presence of Jesus. That's, that's the kind of church we want. That's the kind of parents we want. That's the kind of marriages and friendships and relationships. We have reasons to lower them, but you don't see that with the father, the son coming back. We don't know how he said the speech, but it probably had his eyes to the ground. And the father's like, no, you're my son. All because of God's grace. We get to make more real for others the grace of God. It'll make it more real for us too, which is just a great side benefit. But we get to make the reality of the work of Christ more real in other people's lives. How? Just act like the father, not like the brother. Let's be a church that sees and and feels and runs and embraces and, and, and kisses and re robes. Confession takes courage. We don't want to cringe. We want to do what this text says. We want to celebrate. We want to celebrate. 20 years ago, I cheated on a Christian ethics exam. Um, I confessed it to God. I confessed it to the school. Um, But here's what made God's forgiveness most real to me when I confessed it to my wife. And the way she looked at me, the way she hugged me, and her words of thank you, God's grace is real. Over 25 years of being married to her, that's the thing that makes God's grace loudest to me, is her reactions when she hears of all the stupid things I've done and do and I'm sure we'll continue to do. She never says, it's okay, you sinned. We all do it. She just reminds me of the grace of Jesus that covers all the sins whenever we do. Let's pray. Oh, Father, might you make your grace more real to us. Put us in the spot of, of knowing how needy we are, how lost we are without you how dead in our sins we are without you and make the gospel, uh, make your your grace and the work of Christ become so real to us, so tangible to us that whatever place we find ourselves in this moment, God, that we know we could come home and that God, that would do a work in us that we would not, that we would grow up and be compassionate as the Father is compassionate, God, that you would cultivate. And thank you, I want to thank you, God, that you have created a place that is that way, that this church is like this. And God, we want it more and more for the good of those that are wondering if they can come home, God, so we don't keep things quiet where our strength is dried up, but we can bring them into light, knowing that you are faithful and just to forgive us all our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Tune our hearts to sing your grace. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.